Hi, I'm David Coulthard, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone. Tom Clarkson here, wishing you a warm welcome to another edition of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. First up, did you enjoy last week's episode with Kimi Raikkonen? Yes? I thought you might, and thanks for all the lovely feedback you've sent us. Now, this week's guest is someone who used to be Kimi's McLaren teammate. I first saw him race back in 1990 when he was driving in Formula Vauxhall. In the intervening three decades, he's carved out a formidable Formula One career, first as a driver and then as a broadcaster and entrepreneur. I'm talking, of course, about David Coulthard, although he's rarely called that these days, just the initials DC will do. As a driver, DC took on the best and often beat them. During his 15-year Formula One career, he won 13 races, most notably at Monaco, twice, and he finished runner-up in the World Championship in 2001. He retired from racing at the end of 2008, since when he's maintained a regular presence at every Grand Prix in his role as a broadcaster and as a businessman. In fact, few drivers in the history of the sport have made such a smooth and successful transition from racer to regular life. I've worked with DC a lot in recent years, and this podcast was every bit the pleasure I expected it to be. We had a delicious lunch in Monaco, then retreated to his office and pressed record. I hope you enjoy it. DC, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Um, it's been 10 years since you retired from Formula One as a driver. What do you miss about being a racing driver? That's a great question of which I don't have. You'll, you'll not be surprised to know I don't have a great answer for it. I don't really have a great answer for anything. But I, I don't think I miss anything about the driving and think in an answer is never a great sort of statement, is it? I believe that the the sort of teamwork and camaraderie is what continues to drive me in businesses I'm involved in today. And that was something that I really enjoyed in the journey of being a Grand Prix driver, being a catalyst to work with these clever designers, these motivated mechanics and engineers. And, and you know, essentially my view of Formula One is it brings together the best of lots of different um, industries or, or, or job roles, if you like, whether it's the media that travel the world, whether it's the catering staff, whether it's the people who set up the garages or you know, design, build and operate the race cars. I just think that you have to be cut from a certain cloth and irrespective of where you come from in the world, that cloth has to have a very high work ethic. It has to have a, an ability to share um, responsibility and work as a team. So the, I guess the answer then maybe, Tom, to your question is that the thing I miss is what I've then thrown myself into is that ability to be part of a team, to build a team, to feel that you're working towards a common goal. The driving part, I really enjoyed being a Grand Prix driver. You know, I would say I really loved, uh, but, you know, what what word is sufficient to 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 show your, your commitment to uh, a sport? But I don't miss the pain and uh, mental anguish that goes with trying to work towards being in a winning car. It's tough and it's tough whether you're one of the greats of the past or whether one of the current greats, you know, Lewis Hamilton, it doesn't come easily every single time. We see him go through an emotional roller coaster with his heart on his sleeve during the course of 
you know, 2017, the course of 2018, and I'm sure we'll see it again this year. It may have looked easier last year than others, but there, there still is that various sort of anguish and soul searching, even when you're, you're at the top of your game. So um, that part of it was a phase and I really, really enjoyed it and, and, and loved the fact that I was lucky enough to, to be a professional sportsman. And I guess um, I live for now, so therefore I'm not sitting around in my retirement from racing missing something. I'm, I'm, I've thrown myself into new opportunity and new business, which is still intrinsically linked to the world of motorsport. What about the actual driving bit, though? We're sat here in Monaco, you know, that final run in quali around Monaco in a 98-99 spec McLaren. I mean... Th- when you reflect on that now, does it still get your juices going a little bit? Someone like Monaco I get excited about because this, for me, was one of the biggest challenges on the Grand Prix calendar. I would be thinking about Monaco when I drove the new car in pre-season testing because you need to feel that car as an extension of your body to drive the circuit quickly. You need to feel that you can brush a barrier and, and feel like it's your shoulder brushing against the wall. So you need great spatial awareness of the car you're driving. Some cars you just feel absolutely at one. Some other cars you feel that, you know, you it's attempting to have a crash at every corner that you present it to. So it really, you know, it was an indicator for me pre-season as to whether a car felt like it was talking to me. So something like the thought of driving a lap of Monte Carlo and qualifying, of course, it's tremendously exhilarating. It's a, a wonderful... Um, moment of of individual and machine pushing the boundaries of adhesion and you're at the centre of that with the inputs and the steering wheel and your application of the throttle and the brake and thankfully I was always reasonably good on street circuits so despite uh, not having you know uh, achieved the same level of results in my career as some other drivers I can always sort of rest back on the fact that there were certain tracks, Monte Carlo being one of them, that I was always on the pace and I was always competitive and I was able to take that challenge. 14 years at the top in Formula One, 247 races. When were you at your peak? I think I was at my peak when I was 30. So what would that be? Uh... I'm trying to work out the math on that. Well, when when were you born? It would have been 91. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, 2001. Um, I just think that... Um, Actually, that's a great coincidence because you had a great year in... in yeah. In, yeah. Uh, there was a number of things that I think as a driver, you, you reach a point where you're, you're mentally mature. I think it's as a man as well, uh, you're able to understand your environment understand how the business of Formula One works because it's not all about driving you know I see all, all the young drivers participating today you know Max and Lando's coming on board and George and what have you and they're, they're quick the, the the speed they've got will be the speed they have during their career what will mature is their ability to take in information to engage with the team motivate and 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 get uh, the opportunities coming their direction and as they mature in, in their journey through their 20s they'll be successful hopefully and with success comes fame and recognition and 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 financial reward they'll then learn to be dependent of their own families right now they're all probably still living at home or maybe if they've got their own apartment it's still a little bit like you know being a student on a gap year so i just think there's a, a great maturity that comes late 20s early 30s and that to me is when I perceive drivers are at their best and I I definitely think that was the case for me it's a very small window it only lasted (laughs) probably only one race afternoon rather than an entire season but I enjoyed that moment that is so not true because on your day 
you could and you did beat anyone. If there was one race win that stands out in your mind, what was it? I have said recently that the uh, victory in 2000 Magnicour when qualified second to Michael, but I'd crucially qualified using Mika's race car. So Mika had gone out, had an issue, got in the T car. I went out and qualifying, had an issue with my car, by which time his car had been fixed. So I then jumped in his car, then managed to qualify Mika, who was a exceptionally talented qualifying exceptionally talented racing driver who won two world championships but he was particularly strong on Saturday afternoon so I was always quite strong in Magna Coeur and I just felt when I woke up that morning I remember being on my rowing machine I used to stay in a motorhome beside the track and I would crank out half an hour just to get my body flowing and to sort of focus on the day ahead and I was just absolutely convinced that despite being second on the grid I would, would win that Grand Prix so on the race start Michael cut across the front of me and really cut the front of my car off where I had to lift some would argue that's fair I would say that anything that you know impedes or hinders another driver is on the borderline of not being sporting that allowed Rubens to overtake me so I had to then come and overtake Rubens and then catch Michael and then attempt to overtake Michael and he ran me wide and that's when I gave him the middle finger which I'm obviously not proud of but it is a uh, part of of my iconic image yes an image from that period and then i was able to overtake and go and win the grand prix and it just felt it was one of those rare occasions where i felt i had ownership of the racetrack and i was on top of the car and the opportunity and i felt i had the car that was capable of winning and i was able to then go out and deliver that Uh, you know i had that in monte carlo in one one year as well not the first time i won it because um michael had an issue so i inherited the the victory um, but the uh, second time I, I won here, I was convinced I was going to win the race. I just felt totally on top of the racetrack and, and the opportunity. And Monaco was a circuit. I wanted to be first out on track on Thursday. I wanted a clear track. So I would be in the car, you know, 20 minutes before the session. I would have mechanics release me to be down at the end of the pit lane. And even though you're losing temperature, it's an installation lap. I just wanted ownership of the racetrack. I wanted to be the first driver on the racetrack to see a completely uninterrupted view of, of what Monte Carlo offers. And that just set me off in a, uh, in, in, in a way for the rest of the weekend where I was in the front foot. So I think these sort of little reminders from my career, what I reflect on now, because I don't live that intense a life today, you know, whether I make a mistake, in commentary or whether I turn up a minute late for a uh, a corporate function is not career defining. You'd prefer not to do it, of course. But if I turn up a minute late for qualifying, game's over. You've missed qualifying. If you turn up, you know, if you miss an apex, you hit the barrier. So the game's over. So you couldn't afford to be anything other than the best version of yourself at that time. Fascinating that you knew on those days that you were going to have a good day. Did you... Did you ever work out how to create that sort of conviction every weekend? What, what, what sort of environment did you need around you to, to get the best out of yourself? I learned as I went through my career about just absolute clearing the decks, being focused on saving energy, not in a lazy way, you know, not sitting out on the deck chair uh, on the terrace, but just making sure anything that was a non-necessary part of the weekend unless it unless it was a positive distraction because if you're with friends 
and there's they don't expect anything of you and when you can dip in and out of conversation with friends it's entirely relaxed isn't it if you're at an appearance or a meet and greet where people expect to be entertained they expect your attention they expect you to say something engaging that's actually a little bit like work quite frankly you know it's it involves thought if you're going to do it properly and uh, I totally recognize in being a professional driver, you, you have elements that are required during the weekend. You're required in the press conferences. You're required for the, the corporate appearances with the team partners. You're required to do engineering meetings. You're, you, you, know, you have to factor in some time from leaving your hotel to getting in the car if it's a popular Grand Prix. And there might be race fans there. And likewise, getting from the car park to the paddock. All of these things, if you don't plan how long it's going to take you, you can very easily find yourself under pressure to be somewhere. So I just used to make sure that all my planning from waking up to going to the gym to, get, you know, I used to like waking up early, getting some exercise, getting a big breakfast, nice and relaxed and arriving at the track, feeling that you, you're just ready to go and, and minimize distractions thereafter. How long did it take for you to work that out? Several years. Uh, it was probably 99, 2000, certainly not in the beginning. Um, you know, when I first started in Formula 1 in 94, I was a Formula 3000 driver. Ultimately, I started the, the season in Formula 3000. So it came as a bit of a surprise. And I was in the support system of Williams. So it was really much an extension of me being a test driver for the last three years with the team. 95, you're a proper Formula 1 driver. And then suddenly, Right, how how do I do an entire season of Grand Prix racing? I've not been to Adelaide before. I've never driven Monte Carlo before. The first time I drove Monte Carlo was in a Formula One car. I think I was 18th on the first day in free practice. My eyes were out in stocks. It was so challenging. Qualified third come Saturday because I had managed to you know take it all in and, and improve. But there was a lot of learning in that first year. Plus, I, I had severe bouts of tonsillitis and I had my tonsils removed before the French Grand Prix. Um, which was in June, I think, at that time. So I remember the picture on the podium. I think I finished third. Uh, and the picture looks looks like I'm auditioning for Casper the Ghost. I was just white because I'd, I'd been ill. I'd, I'd literally been in and out of this tonsillitis because suddenly my body was being pushed mentally and physically beyond the normal work I'd been doing before. You go from being unknown to suddenly being in demand. And, it, and so everything changes and it takes time to to develop and, and adapt to those scenarios. Well, you talk about your tonsillitis, but can we just go back a little bit further? Because there was another, it's not an illness, but you broke your leg in Formula Vauxhall in 1990 at Spa. Any lasting effects even now? Well, I never ran again, which was uh, one of the positives. Absolutely. That's one of the positives of uh, breaking my leg, because I was never really <laughs> that keen on running. I know you're, you're a keen runner. Um, but I had a, what's called a green stick fracture, which is, you know, it's not a proper compound, you know, Mark Webber style bone through the skin. Uh, but it's annoying enough, of course, to, to mean that you, you need to take some time out. And I was um, initially put in a plaster cast, and then went to London Hospital to see Sid Watkins and he promptly got out the scissors and cut the plaster cast off and said, it's only a green stick fracture, you'll heal much quicker if we bandage it and you put some weight on it. So I missed a couple of races whilst I was recovering from that. But the, the healing part of the, the bone is very close to the joint, my knee joint. And when I ran after that, it would rub on a tendon, I assume. I've never done the analysis because the next day I would then have difficulty with the movement of the leg. 
So I stopped running and got into cycling and swimming and rowing. Never had a problem. And, you know, 1990, it wasn't really, one, I didn't have the money to get into private hospital keyhole surgery. And back then, keyhole surgery wasn't really something that people spoke about. So you just got on with it. And so today, if I had to run for the bus, if I took a bus, uh, then it wouldn't be pretty. But I could, I could do one run, but I would struggle the next day. So this is where the sponsorship from, was it Crooks Healthcare? Crooks Healthcare, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the following year. Yeah, they were the provider for Boots. It's owned by the same okay. uh, company as Boots the Chemist. So, um, but actually, that uh, what I did discover during that time through Crooks Healthcare, they had a product called SlimFast, which was a slimming or a meal replacement protein-y type shake. But I realised that I struggled to consume the amount of fluid I needed as a driver and food at lunchtime without getting... I've got a herniated valve, uh, whatever the, the... What does that mean for people who don't know? Well, like I don't me. know what the technical term is. Like so many other things, <laughs> I don't know the actual proper terms. But my where my stomach valve would normally seal, a lot of men apparently, and I'm sure some women, the valve doesn't close perfectly and therefore I get acid reflux. So I've always struggled with indigestion. If you drink a lot of fluid, any sports person will know you're drinking vast litres of fluid rehydration solution because you're sweating a lot in the car. Your, your stomach is very often full. And if you pile on food on top of that, it's heavy and just indigestion becomes a problem. So even today, I take a pill every day for my, my acid reflux. And, you know, back when I was a kid, before I knew there were sophisticated pills, I was just living on Rennie's or whatever, sure. you know, uh, antacid uh, product was available. So... Um, they had uh, the, the, the SlimFast product. So I, I, I started to, to drink it at lunchtime with a banana and everything mixed in. And I found that I could get the fluid in that I needed without having the same problem with the acid reflux. So I became a, a very early convert to meal replacements. So I'd have a big breakfast, as I mentioned, when I was a Grand Prix driver, I'd have a big dinner. But during the day, it was very often protein shakes, liquidy, you know, um, fruit-based shakes. So I wasn't eating many solids during the course of a day. And did that stay with you throughout your career? Absolutely, that? yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, there you go. Um, great way to have your food easily digested as yeah. well. Having had my tonsils out, I, I you know, they, nowadays they would have you eat toast and all the rest of it. But back then it was also about, you know, it was painful. So going on to sort of processed and blended food, not only was easier on, on swallowing, it actually digests a lot quicker. So if you take out the middleman, which is the chewing process, and blend all your food, digest better, you get all the energy, and it's, it stops some of that heavy, bloated feeling. What did your boss at the time, Jackie Stewart, make of this diet? Well, when I joined Paul Stewart Racing, I come off the back of the traditional British stroke Scottish approach to Sunday, Sunday, which was a full English or a full Scottish breakfast. And uh, so when I joined Paul Stewart Racing and he got me onto porridge and oats and all... Uh, Jackie you know, got you onto yeah, porridge. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I wasn't well for the first few months as my body adapted. Um, but I was bulimic when I was in karting because I was tall and, and you know, I had to watch my weight. So I'd always been very conscious of my weight. And because of the herniated valve that I, I talk about, it's very easy for me to, to bring, bring the contents of my my stomach uh, back to daylight. This is a lovely podcast for your <laughs> yeah. listeners. But, um, so, you know, I was able to manage my weight through that in a way that other athletes, whether it's, you know, jockeys and people that are uh, struggling with their weight would be able to do so. Um, and then, of course, once you get into cars, it's not an issue. But, uh, you know, some of the things you go through and the sacrifices you make 
it, it all makes sense when you're doing it because it's all about performance and performance is key. And if, you, if you're not prepared to make sure that you are in the perfect condition and, and the perfect weight for the opportunity, then why should you expect your engineers, your mechanics, your team to be perfect? One lesson that you learned from Jackie Stewart. Attention to detail is an expression he would use a lot. I had that, uh, a fair amount of that into my, my education from my mother and father anyway. You know, they're very organized people. Um, my father's dyslexic like Jackie, so they overcome the issues they have. And in, in back in their day, the, you were just stupid. You weren't, you know, dyslexia now, there's many ways of, of treating, helping and, and supporting people who've got it. I'm not dyslexic, but my, my, I say my father is, my brother is. And um, the the make up for their deficiencies in some areas by just being super organized to, to be enable them to function the way they, they can. And so I always was quite, you know, uh, presented in a certain way and interested in things being as neat and tidy as possible uh, and putting things back in the same place because then there's you don't have to remember where it is. It will always be where you put it. If it's always back in the same place, I'm going through this process with my 10-year-old right now. Thankfully, my wife, Garn, is very organized as well, but trying to get the 10-year-old to understand you won't have to look for anything again if you put it in the same place when you finish it, finish with it because that will always be where you where it is and where you expect it to be but of course anyone who's got kids will know <laughs> they just leave things wherever they they happen to finish playing with them dc are you one of these guys who opens the fridge door and you have to sort of align all the cans so that the, that the name is in the right place a little bit of ocd or not i don't have to do that to feel good about my day but i enjoy to do that and uh, so i i can't tell you right now whether our drinks fridge in the apartment is everything lined up properly but I have on several occasions lined everything up with the, the name of the brand pointing the same direction because it just makes me feel good and it looks nice. But I understand for some people, they would consider that a complete waste of time. What I would consider a waste of time is not being organized, not being prepared. You know, when I come home from a trip, you know, I empty my bags immediately. I, I re-prepare my travel bag in terms of passports and all of the things that I would need to go with me. So if I'm needed like a fireman, the alarm bell goes off and I need to travel right at that moment, I can pick up a bag and go and everything I need is in that bag. Okay, I may not have my kilt, I may not have my black tie if, if I was suddenly going to those functions, but it's unlikely I'm going to get a call up at the last minute to a black tie function. Mm. But there may have been a time when, you know, as a racing driver, Mika got ill and the team said, right, we need you at the test track now so I could pick up a bag and go without delay. So it's always good to be pre-organised. Can I ask you about Formula 3000 now? Because... End of 91, you didn't win the British Formula 3 Championship, second to Rubens Barrichello, but you won Macau, you won at Zandvoort. You'd had a very successful season. By 1994, you were in your third season of F3000. Was there a, ever a doubt in your mind that the F1 dream was slipping away at that point, at the start of 94? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're just on, on Formula 3, I don't remember exactly how many races from the end, but... I do remember three events that led up to me not winning that championship. And as you pointed out, I won Macau, I won Zambort, 
and I won more races that year than than Rubens, who won the championship. But there was a Donington race where I led out the first corner, and when I went to go from second to third gear, the gearbox jammed between two gears, and I retired. Silverstone, there was an ECU failure, didn't finish. And the last race in Thruxton, I could still win the championship. All I had to do was finish in front of Rubens. So I'd already taken a points hit at the Donington race and the Silverstone race. And I came together with, uh, I think it was Hideki Noda, a Japanese driver, in a half-hearted attempt to overtake him at the chicane, which wasn't necessary because I was in front of Rubens. But fate decided that I would be half-hearted in my attempt. Fate decided, uh, or the racing gods, that my wing would get damaged and Rubens would win the championship. But uh, although I, I, you know, I didn't win the championship in a second, I, f- I do feel that everything was in place to have had one of what would be considered a very dominant year in Formula 3. And when you throw in Macau and, and Zambor as well, that was obviously a springboard into 3000. And to answer your question... I uh, did a year with Paul Stewart Racing and then they long, longer had the funding in place for for me to be part of the team for the following year. I then went to Pacific Racing and with some support from the family and some support from Reynard and uh, Nicholson McLaren, who were the engine supplier, uh, we did a season and uh, I was in the hunt to win the championship at the last round and came out of the first corner and we'd modified the throttle pedal at the beginning of the season to make a bigger separation between the throttle and the brake. And for whatever reason, where it had been welded, the day it decided to fail was at the first corner of the last race when I could win the championship and the the pedal broke and I didn't finish. So I think uh, Olivier Panis won the championship, somebody else finished second, I can't recall, and I finished third, which could have been a win. So I was in the hunt for the championship, like well in the hunt for those two championships. And then I'm into my third year. I've got no money. Uh, Ronnie Meadows, who's now the team manager or sporting director at, at Mercedes, was um, with um, uh, the team whose name I've forgotten. Vortex. Right now. Vortex? Vortex yeah. yeah, thank you very much. Vortex Racing. And again, managed to scrabble a chassis out of Reynard to be paid at some point in the future, an engine from a supplier and, you know, literally scrabbled together to go to the first race at Silverstone, which was the Bank Holiday Monday Silverstone race. And Gilles won that race, who's now the sporting director at McLaren. Gilles de Ferran. Gilles de Ferran. I think Michael Bartels might have finished second, who dated uh, Steffi Graf for a while. And I finished third. And that was the best result Vortex had had until that that period. And that also turned out to be the same weekend, I believe, that, that Emila happened and Ayrton was killed and Roland was killed and I didn't have the money to do that race never mind to do the next race and then everything changed and my opportunity to race in Formula 1 came so a long way to answer the fact that yes uh, my my belief was that I was running out of opportunities to, to become a Grand Prix driver I didn't I still had absolute commitment because I went out and made those opportunities happen you know uh, got the opportunity with Vortex and with Ronnie. But I was definitely at the sort of last chance saloon uh, and everything changed. Well, in 93, you became the Williams test driver. What assurances had you got from... Um, what assurances had you got from Frank Williams about maybe a potential race drive? Because, of course, that's how Damon Hill started there and it worked out for him. Yeah, it was a very straightforward testing contract. Initially, I tested... 
for Williams for a year with no contract and, and, and no payment, but you know, it was fine. I've, I was just delighted to be driving a Formula One car occasionally. And so, you know, 90... Daisy, sorry to interrupt you. You, yeah. you had no contract with Williams and yeah. they, they still put you in their Formula One car, which was, of course, the dominant car of the time. Yeah, absolutely. What, a phone call, what are you doing on Friday? Can you come to Silverstone? It was that kind of relationship. Well, or? Ian Cunningham, who I ended up working with for, for several years, is a friend and he had worked at Williams uh, and had been you know very close to Frank for, for, for several years as his sort of support system and, and what have you and, and travelled with Frank. And, and Ian, being a fellow Scot, had been sent to Frank who went to St. Joseph's College in Dumfries which is the same college that Alan McNish went to. Uh, and I was born in Dumfries. So there was a sort of connection there that Frank had with Scotland and Ian being a Scot was sort of pushing this young Scottish driver who who was racing um, uh, in Formula 3. And he managed to persuade him to give me a test. And Frank had always been someone that had given opportunity to young drivers. And the test went okay. And... Um, I got invited to the next test and it just kind of grew like that. But I was always told that because Renault and Elf, especially Elf, wanted a French driver, that they didn't want to officially announce me as a tester and didn't want to contract me. And I, I didn't question. I was just happy to get the mileage and the experience. So by the time I was actually signed as a test driver, I think it would be 92 and then, uh, or maybe it was 93, and then 94, I was, again, a test driver on a very, you know, nominal salary to turn up and test new parts. And then, of course, became the race driver. So my my testing contract just got extended into being a racing driver in 94. And that was one of the issues why I ended up in a contract dispute between Williams and McLaren, because we never actually ever negotiated or signed a proper racing contract. It was always an amended testing contract. And then when I signed to go to McLaren for 96 and Williams challenged that, we went to the contract recognition board recognition board in Geneva and they found in favour of McLaren as having the dominant contract. So what the contract recognition board did was acknowledge what my management at the time felt was that the Williams testing contract that became a racing contract was not clearly defined and therefore unenforceable. Hadn't there been a tug of war over your services at the end of 94 as well? Well, Williams, uh, at the end of 94, told me that they, they wanted to sign a two-year contract. So we agreed terms for 95, 96, went to the factory to sign that contract. And Ron Dennis had already shown interest towards the end of the year in having me come on board for, for uh, 95 and, and beyond. And uh, we went to sign, and I say we, my management at the time, IMG, we went to Didcot to sign the contract. And as I went into the, the office, Frank said he changed his mind and he didn't want to do a two-year contract. He wanted to do a one-year contract. But apparently Damon was upsetting him over his negotiation. So I remember Peter Goodman, who was the lawyer for Williams, having got the two-year contract out, looking bemused and confused. And I remember going into Frank's secretary's office next door with my manager and going, well, we now have a one-year contract on the table rather than two years. And so my manager, Tim Wright, said, well, let's phone Ron. He phoned Ron and Ron said, okay, sign a contract, sign the one-year contract with Williams, come to McLaren and we'll do a contract for 96, 97. So I, I signed for Williams, having called McLaren from his building, drove down to Woking, 
and then signed for McLaren and then drove up to Scotland for Christmas and told my mum and dad, there's good news and bad news. The good news is I'm contracted for three years in Formula One. The bad news is it's with two different teams, which was a bit confusing for them. David, what a fantastic... So really, the same day you bounced from one team to the other, 95 with Williams, 6-7 with McLaren. What a great story. And as I walked into McLaren, Martin Brundle was coming out. It was on the weekend and we didn't expect to bump into... To Martin, and it was a bit embarrassing because he was a current driver. Um, and then, obviously, I guess the penny was was dropping that maybe, you know, I I would be joining the team for for ninety six because he raced for them. Was it ninety four, ninety five, ninety four? He raced for them, and yep. then Mark Blundell ninety five. Yeah, exactly the Peugeot yeah. engine. But look, what a fascinating story. We got slightly ahead of ourselves because I did want to talk to you about the momentous moments of Imola ninety four. And can you just talk us through? I mean, you've said already that you were at Silverstone that weekend racing in F3000, but can you remember what you were doing when you heard of Senna's accident and and just your sort of what happened after that in terms of your thought process and also the approach from Williams to go racing? Well, my recollection is that qualifying for the Bank Holiday Monday race was on the Sunday and the race was on the Monday, obviously. So the Sunday was the race day for Formula One. I was living in Milton Keynes at that time and my recollection is that I watched the race start on the television that was on display at the Avon tire truck in the middle of the Silverstone paddock. You know, there wasn't HD television in those days and wireless connections and all the rest of it. So it was pretty basic stuff. And I remember seeing the crash and thinking that didn't, of course, look at all good. And like everybody else thinking that any moment, you know, Ayrton's going to get out of the car and walk away. And, and then later that day, obviously, the information coming through that, you know, tragically on, on top of the tragedy of the, the Saturday when Roland Ratzenberger lost his life, Ayrton had lost his life. And then I was asked by a, a Scottish journalist called Jim Dunn from The Scotsman whether I would be contacting Williams to ask if I could drive the car. And I remember being a bit shocked because nothing was further from my mind than even asking that question in the aftermath. You know, it just seemed too traumatic, too unreasonable a thing to even think about, never mind do. And from that moment until the moment where I knew I was going testing in Hereth a couple of weeks later, I never spoke to the team about what the replacement strategy was, not one conversation, nothing. Because... To, to me, that it, it wasn't the right thing to do. I know, or I believe, from what I've been told, there was, you know, every manager and every driver available was on, on the phone, you know, from the, from the following day, offering their services. I went to Hereth to test the car, as I would have normally done as test driver, and was told that other drivers may be coming to be evaluated for who'd get the race seat. And over the course of a couple of days, no one else turned up. And then... I was told Frank was coming to the test, so I assumed that some you know superstar race driver was coming. And as I'd never damaged a Williams in testing in three years. As he arrived at the racetrack, we had these uh, bale chicanes that had been fitted in various circuits after the big crash of uh, um, Martin Donnelly a few years before, trying to slow down certain tracks. And I clipped one of the bales and crashed the car. And I remember getting back to the pits and the car's missing a couple of corners and Frank saying, despite the fact you've just crashed my car, I'm here to tell you you'll be racing in Barcelona. And that was it. Off I went as a Grand Prix driver. 
What impact did Senna's death have on you, a young driver? Because even young drivers today, Lando Norris still you know, talks about Senna and the influence that Senna had on him. Well, what about a guy like you who was up and coming at the time? The benefit of youth is you, you, you take things in your stride that would maybe take a lot longer as, as you get older and you become more aware of your mortality. So the benefit of youth is you don't know what you don't know. You just crack on. And of course, I was tremendously impressed uh, to to meet Ayrton, to share a car with him, to test in Estoril as we did pre-season. And then again in Jerez before he went off to start the Grand Prix season and to sit in debriefs and observe how he spoke to the engineers and to have him ask me what I thought about the car and to go through an experience with him that I'd also had the similar opportunity with Prost and Mansell when they were racing at Williams. So, you know, I'd worked with world champions before as the as the test driver, but Ayrton's Ayrton. So, of course, he, uh, I have a, a, you know, a vivid uh, recall of spending time and talking to him and, you know, my, the weekend he was killed, uh, the Williams team, I'm sure it was organised by, probably Annie Bradshaw, who was the press officer at the time, to, to get a few of the team to sign a piece of paper and fax it through to me, wishing me luck for the Formula 3000 race. And one of the signatures was Ayrton saying, you know, whatever, to David, very best to you, Ayrton. And um, so that came on the Saturday um, to by, by the old Lou rolled style fax machines that we used to have in those days to my uh, rented accommodation in Milton Keynes. And then, of course, he was he was dead by the by the Sunday. But he was more than just a driver, unquestionably. Anyone who's watched footage of how he described things, how he communicated, they're all great drivers at that level. But he had something that could send a little aura through a room. So when he entered the room, even if you didn't see him, you could feel his presence. And you say you work with Prost, you work with Mansell. They didn't have that same aura. Prost was my favourite driver. So for me, when I first tested alongside him at Imola, actually, 1993, he's in one car, I'm in the other. And I remember looking over and thinking, if, if, if nothing ever progresses beyond this point, this is the greatest moment. You know, I'm sharing a car or at my own Williams, but I'm beside the driver that I looked up to at that, at that time. And um, he had a very different way of communicating with the team and, and testing. And they're all unique in their own way. Uh, but Ayrton had something else which goes beyond driving that some special people have, whether it's a Nelson Mandela or whoever you want to pick out as notable people that have been able to engage and excite and 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 bring people together so what was it like sharing a car with mansell in that latter part of of 1994 how frustrating was that for you well again it wasn't frustrating because i had no other option and you only i think pressure for me is when you're losing control of a situation not when you're doing what you enjoy to do so there was no pressure when i started in formula one in 94 because what was the expectation? Uh, the, the worst I could do would be to crash the car every time I took it out on track. But if I, I, hadn't, I didn't have a history of crashing cars all the time. So if I just did what I was used to doing, chances are I could do a reasonable job and bring the car home. So I never felt any pressure in those early stages. And then sharing a car with Nigel was 
always what I'd understood was going to happen. We He would do eight races or whatever it was and I would do the rest and it was acceptable. And I remember Frank wanted me to um, drive at Sauber in between time alongside Heinz Harald because he was keen to see how I compared to Heinz Harald because he was looking at Frentzen for the future. And I turned that opportunity down and said that I wanted to concentrate on driving the Williams. One, because I didn't see the point of going from a car at the front of the grid to a car at the back of the grid against a driver who clearly was quick and knew the team, spoke German and was being looked at by Williams for the future. You know, that was like a turkey voting for Christmas. So I declined that opportunity and just focused on watching Nigel when I was on the sidelines observing where he, where he worked again with the team, how he worked and trying to learn. How different was he to Senna and Prost in particular? Well, very different personality. And, and what anyone who's been around the sport will know that Nigel's, they all had great speed and, and they're all exceptional drivers and they're all world champions and they all will go down in the history of motor racing as that that rare breed that have the the speed, the commitment, all of the things that are necessary to, to sustain, to win a championship. Nigel was probably more complicated than the other two because of his makeup. He had different background, all the famous stories of, of overcoming adversity and breaking his neck or, or fracturing his neck when he was a young driver and having to remortgage the mortgage to pay the mortgage and all of those things. So a bit more what I would say with the greatest of respect, because I do have the greatest respect for Nigel, but a bit more chippy, a bit more, I could listen to you, but actual fact, let me just tell you, let me just transmit. And therefore that's the way it's going to be, you know, a lot more strong willed. And it clearly worked to, to get the best out of him. But I wouldn't say it was a, a sort of cuddly relationship of, give and take <laughs> you know he's, um but I, I really admire what nigel has achieved and I admire what he gave it back to the sport as well at grassroots because i i know from first-hand experience he he gave his own personal time when my sister was coming up through karting uh, to support karting generally through martin hines um just so happened my sister was racing at that time so she got to meet him and, and, and him being very encouraging towards her. And that's long before I get anywhere near Formula One. I was a Formula Four driver. He just, he had a big heart and, and really was more than, away from the racetrack, it was more than just me, me, me. But at the racetrack, it was very much focused on him. Mm. Lionheart. Now, we go to McLaren. You sign that deal at the end of 94, but you end up, you go to McLaren in 96. Um, nine years at McLaren. Not all of it in competitive machinery. Um, why so long? Having experienced the transition from Williams in 95, leading the last Grand Prix of Adelaide, to being 13th on the grid in 1996 in the McLaren in Melbourne, three months or four months later. When the two Williamses are one and two. They are one and two. The penny dropped about never move for financial gain, always try and be in the most competitive car possible. And... That's another long and and probably boring for most story about how that move to McLaren was was also, you know, a financial driver for IMG who took a percentage of my contract. So for them, going to a much bigger earning contract was the business they were in. And, you know, I, I feel with the benefit of hindsight, if I'd stayed at Williams for 96, 97, I had two more opportunities to win a world championship 
and it took again until 98 before we had a world championship winning car of course uh, Mika picked up the title 98-99 so uh, I had an opportunity to go to Ferrari but the contract that was offered by Jean was if Michael was fifth and I was fourth I had to move over if I was first and he was second I had to move over and Michael would have been in front of me we, we all know that now but at the time I of course believed I had the potential to be uh, a world champion and I couldn't sign a contract that committed me to being number two and McLaren always offered me on paper a contract that was open. Of course, I went through a roller coaster with Ron because of Mika having had an accident in the McLaren 95. Ron had spent time at the hospital when he's in life support and he felt a very strong bond, understandably, to Mika. Put on top of that, the fact Mika was incredibly quick. And I always felt that Ron was giving more sort of emotional, psychological support to Mika, which in the end, you need everything going for you. You need everything. It's not just about having the car. You need every... That's why you, you, as a driver, have to lobby the team, spend time with the team to get the maximum out of the mechanics, the engineers, to get the benefit of the doubt out of the engine supplier if one new engine comes with quarter of a horsepower more. You want them putting it in your car for whatever reason. And that doesn't happen by accident. You've got to lobby these people. So in in knowing that Ron was emotionally more connected to, to Mika, that niggled me. And I had several conversations with him over the years where he always denied there was any sort of favouring, mental favouring. And eventually one day he, he said, yep, you know, I, I do feel and I've always felt a deep bond to Mika. He almost died in one of my cars. And... Yeah, okay. You know, the, there is a sort of fathering instinct towards them. And at that moment, because I got the answer what I what I wanted <laughs> and the answer that I believed to be the case, it took away that line of questioning. It completely took away that pressure because all of a sudden it was acknowledged as being the case. And it's a good life lesson, I think. A lot of time people just want to know. They're not wanting a change. I, I didn't, Ron couldn't physically do anything any different. But I just wanted to know that it wasn't a misplaced perception in my mind. It was it was absolutely there. And I used an example once to Ron, who's a great family man, that it'd be like if he was giving the reins to McLaren to, you know, one of his two or three kids, depending, but for the purpose of this story, let's say his two kids, for a week each or a month each, whatever timeline you wanted to run the company. And he brought one in on the Sunday for a briefing before they took over the reins on a Monday. Didn't physically make any decisions, but just gave them a briefing and the other one just came in on the Monday. That's a psychological advantage. That's an advantage. And at that level, you want every advantage. And I just always felt he was giving that little psychological advantage to Mika. And when he acknowledged it, it just released that pressure. And I think the reason I stayed at McLaren for nine years is one, because I always felt that was the best opportunity for me to uh, have a winning car. And they all they always respected the fact that even though I clearly was not the fastest driver over a single lap, I had a work ethic and a commitment. I turned up on time and I cared. And that that enabled us to have one of the longest relationships in Grand Prix history. So when you get to Melbourne in 98 and you're asked to give up the win, well, first of all, would you do that again? With the benefit of hindsight, clearly no. <laughs> so... How did Ron explain it away? 
98, we've got a quick car. I remember I did the shakedown, the first test, the first day. Car seemed good. Um, then we get into the normal testing that you would do. And then I hand over to Mika. And we'd reach that point in the test where we go out in the morning, get the fuel down, see what lap time it can do. And I remember standing with Steve Hallam and Mika does a lap time that was, you know, like a second quicker than anyone else had done at, at that point. And, you know, he did another lap where, again, you know, still very quick. And it was like, get the car in, get some fuel in it, because it was clear this was, you know, a special car. It was the narrow track, groove tyre, which was a horrible period of Formula One, but that's what we had at that time. And it was clear we had a very quick car, but all through winter testing, we never managed to do a Grand Prix distance. The car would break down. There was always some issue. So we arrive in Melbourne knowing we've got the two quickest cars, but we also know we're about to start a Grand Prix with no Grand Prix distance completed on the car. So a little bit like launching a new aircraft to fly across the Atlantic when it's only ever managed to get as far as Paris before having a technical issue. So we... we rationally and I guess what Ron did is what he should as the team principal goes if we drive these cars hard we won't finish if we drive them below what we you know we know they can achieve then we've got a chance of finishing so we need to set a criteria that sees us not racing each other and he originally said whoever qualifies in front of the other will will remain unchallenged and I amended it to be whoever comes out at the first corner. Because I, I thought in my mind it gave me a chance that if Mika outqualified me, I could still outstart him. So that was agreed. He outqualified me, he outstarted me, and therefore we, we were maintaining order thereafter. One of the consequences of Mika's accident in 95 is he's deaf in one ear. And the radio message came from Mark Slade, who's a senior engineer at Renault now. Uh, to Mika to cool the brakes, which was just another way of slow the pace down. And we were just maintaining the pace. I think we lapped everyone uh, up to third. And Mika thought he said, pit now. So he came into the pits. I didn't, of course, because it was never planned. And he ended up being behind me. And then instead of the team doing what probably would have been a less controversial thing, which is just leaving the, the running order like that, they asked me to slow down and let Mika pass. And I did, because that's what we'd agreed. And he won the race, I finished second. There was an uproar in the media because no one really had seen that happen before in, let's say, recent Grand Prix times. And of course, there was a betting issue as well. I, I never bet on sport generally, but there was a bunch of people betting who would win the race, and it fundamentally changed the betting outcome as well. And, and you know, the FIA, of course, there was no facility for team orders at that time there is today which I believe should be the case because we, we we were pretending we were cheating our audience by pretending there was not team orders so, you know we've seen it many times thereafter um, so I never got to win that race and I was always told that it would be I'd be given the victory back if we were ever in a one-two situation I never got that victory back but in the last race of Mika's uh, when he retired, he was running third and I was fourth in Suzuka and he pulled over on the last lap and I finished third and he didn't have to do the press conference. Wasn't really the same. It's not a win, is yeah. it? Yeah, but in fairness to Ron, and it, it, I never raced motivated by money, but in fairness to Ron, he still paid as if I won the Grand Prix, which in fairness to Martin Brundle, who was my manager at the time, 
he had that conversation with Ron because it was not even in my mind to say, I think it's fair to say that David, although he's not won the race, he did everything as like a race winner, so the bonus should be paid. Talk us about the relationship. Talk to us about the relationship you had with Brundle. You implied a little bit earlier that the IMG relationship was maybe a bit tricky because different motivations. Is that why you went for a, a driver to be your manager, an ex-driver? That's absolutely why I wanted someone like Martin to to be involved in the management because I didn't want uh, an IMG were you know incredible company lots of bright guys and you know Andrew Hampel Tim Wright Ian Todd and various others you know Julian Jacobi they were all there at the the, the time when I signed to them and I've got tremendous respect for them but equally they didn't know the business of Formula One they knew business and the new contracts and the new sporting opportunities but I just didn't feel they knew the sport as much as I wanted a manager to to understand and I said to him, my motivation was never financial gain. My motivation was to get in a car, to race the car and to be in the best car. So different to what a management company's motivation would be. They want you in the best car, but they also want the biggest salary because that's where they earn their their, uh, their money. And when I, I actually, when Mark McCormick was still alive, I wrote to him and requested to be released from my contract, which is what happened. And I paid you know, agreed a, a compensation package, um, which I paid to get out of the contract. And then for a year, I didn't have a manager. And liberating in any way or not? No, not really, because I, no, not really liberating, just right. Mm. You know, I was too busy trying to win races to feel some sort of, you know, mm. get a cigar out moment. It's just uh, something that wasn't right. And I therefore wanted to deal with it to make it right. You know, I, I've always about, I've always been about trying to simplify and keep things as simple as possible. And if something's a bit complicated, it takes energy. If it takes energy, that energy is not available to put into what you really need to do, which is drive cars and go quickly. But equally, I know you need things in place to run a proper business. You know, the business of sport is big business and you can't play at it. So, you know, we're sitting having this conversation in, in my office in, in Monaco, which is in the same building that I live because that's the most efficient way for me to operate my life. I could have an office in London. I, you know, Ian Cunningham, who looked after some of my business affairs for many years, was based in Oxford. Not the most convenient office for me to go to, as I don't live in Oxford. So, you know, just keep things simple is, is always the, the way I felt was the best way to operate. And I remember having the conversation with Martin on a flight to Japan when he was still racing for Jordan and asking him whether he'd ever consider being a manager. At that time, he was intending racing the next year, and it was, I think, quite late that he found out he wouldn't be. And then when he retired or no longer had an opportunity to race in Formula One, that's when I went to him and we agreed to work together, and he continued to work for me the remainder of my career. Now, DC, when I think back of uh, uh, to your career, I think of those France 2000 moments, those wins in Monaco. But I also think of Barcelona 2000 because... Um, it was just prior to that race where you had your plane accident and the fact that you even showed up at all at the Spanish Grand Prix that weekend, uh, I think blew everybody away and I think it blew your team away. Just that that plane crash, the impact it had on you and I mean, uh, I don't know if you're happy to talk about it, but how, how did it affect your outlook on life in a, in a far sort of deeper way than just Formula One? Well, out of that tragedy, and it was a tragedy because the, the pilots lost their lives and they were husbands, they were fathers, they were sons. And 
I met them at Farnborough Airport, shook their hand, and an hour or so later, the plane had crashed and the pilots were dead. So very short relationship with them, but tragic. And as I found out afterwards, the pilots had um, knew that I was coming on board, had told his father because he liked motor racing that he was going to be flying me and they had a Scottish flag on the back of the aircraft because the aircraft was owned by a Scottish entrepreneur called David Murray, who at one point owned Rangers and Celtic Football Club. And we had an engine failure on the left engine and were attempting a single engine landing at uh, Lyon Airport. Should be a completely standard and, and, and normal procedure for the pilots to be able to cope with. But for whatever reason on that day, they weren't able to do that successfully. And as I said, they lost their lives. And myself, uh, my girlfriend at the time and my trainer were able to come out of the wreckage. So, of course, a pretty shocking and traumatic and life-changing event. Uh, I recall I recall being driven back from Lyon um, that evening and arriving back in Monaco and lying in my bed, which is still the same apartment that I live in today, as a creature of habit, I don't move around too much. And I remember having a little shiver, you know, that sort of feeling sometimes you get when you you, just, you don't know what it is, but it's a little shiver down my, my spine. And the realisation that I could have died that day, that, that, that was it, all over. 30 years old, game over. And it was a real kick up my spoiled, selfish ass to effect change in my life. You know, I was 30 years old. I was being well paid to drive racing cars, slightly spoiled because at that point in my life, I'd been earning well enough to be independently wealthy and make decisions like I did on that day, which is instead of waiting for my normal aircraft in the afternoon, I woke up, decided I wanted to come home early, asked my office to find another aircraft. They found that aircraft. It turned up, it crashed. People died. And I walked away. Had I been patient, could I had no reason to be back in Monaco earlier, I would have taken my normal aircraft and things could have been different. So, if buts and maybe, but it was the evolution. This goes on to another subject, which I'll try and remember to come back to your question, Tom, but it comes on to another subject where what I've lived through is when, when people go from being young hopefuls to being Grand Prix drivers and the enthusiasm from friends and family and people around them is, oh, it's great, it's such a great opportunity. And, you know, I hope he never changes because he's approachable and he's this and he's that. It's not just you who change inevitably because life, you should evolve. Hopefully you evolve into a better person because you've got experience and what have you. But sometimes you evolve in a negative way because you get bad influence. You, you, you're not able to deal with the opportunity that, fame and recognition and, and financial reward brings you. But equally, people around you change. Because uh, I remember in 94, when I went from test driver to race driver for that Barcelona Grand Prix, the team that had been asking me to do things as a test driver were now asking, would you mind doing this? So they went from going, David, you need to do that, to David, would you mind doing it? Because the minute you go from being you know, under you know, the schoolboy team to main team perception is you should be treated the same way as the established 
drivers and then you get used to that. You Well, actually, now you've asked me, would I mind doing it? Yes, I would mind doing it. And then you get these awkward racing drivers who don't do the things that you'd want to do. And you go, well, I don't understand. When, when, I, when I worked with him five years ago, he was a really nice guy. He's now turned into to an asshole. So um, it was coming back to the plane crash. Uh, I had to ask myself, do I want to race again? Do I want to fly again? I didn't want to fly, you know, the, the same day. I absolutely wanted to race. And um, I don't recall, Tom, and I'm embarrassed to say, I don't recall how I was in contact with the father of the pilot. But I was in contact with the father of the pilot and to let them know that I was intended racing and that had his support because his son was excited to have flown me and, and of course they never knew what was going to happen and they would never want that to happen. But, you know, I shouldn't stop doing what I'm doing because of the tragedy. I should keep doing what I'm doing to 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 acknowledge and, and respect those that are no longer with us. And did that seal of approval from the father help get you to Barcelona a few days later? Definitely made it easier. I think, I would, frankly speaking, I would have been there because that you, you, you there, there's respect and respecting others and there's equally making those difficult decisions which won't always please everybody but have to be taken and I had to either race or stop racing taking a, a weekend off because I had you know a couple of broken ribs there was no physical reason why I couldn't drive the car. There was no mental reason why I couldn't drive the car. Therefore, there was no reason why I shouldn't drive the car and honour my contract. And I wanted to, to do it. The fact that that had understanding and support from people going through a tragedy just helps yeah. make everything a bit more comfortable. Did you ever dwell on the, the, the danger aspect of what you were doing for a living in the car? Not really, because had I ever dwelled on that, I would never have gotten the car in 94 because the very same car that the greatest driver of that era had been killed in was the very car that I was racing in Barcelona. They didn't change, you know, it was a different chassis, of course, but it didn't change anything. Same car. Mm. So it was a freak accident with a, a horrible outcome. And the benefit, again, of youth is you don't know what you don't know and you don't fear what you haven't grown in life enough to, to be worried about losing. And when you're young, you, you don't fear not having your the rest of your life because the, the rest of your life is this afternoon, <laughs> tomorrow. And, you know, 47, almost 48 years old, I want to live to see our son become a man. That's my my biggest motivation today because that's what parents, you know, you get that transition in life and you've got three kids and you can relate to that. If we get lucky and get to see our children as adults, what more do we deserve? Because life will end, whether we like it or not. Hopefully it ends after a full and healthy and, and, and happy life. But some of the people that we revere in motorsport have died young. You know, various drivers you can, you can rattle off who've lost their lives in their you know, early 20s or, or early 30s who never got the chance to to sit and reflect on their careers, but they died doing what they love to do. And I remember when I had a crash in 95 in Silverstone, when I was knocked out, that to me was a bit of a, a revelation that I wanted to share with my mother, who was always very nervous about me racing. And I called her up and I said, look, this is off the back of what happened in 94. It was a very 
public display uh, or public um, example of drivers losing their lives with Roland on the Saturday and Ayrton on the Sunday. So I wanted my mother to know that having had the crash and having been knocked out, the moment where I suddenly was knocked out, I wasn't screaming and fearful as I'm about to hit the barrier. I was being a racing driver trying to minimize the impact because what you learn when you race for a long time is you will crash occasionally, but when you do crash, it's about trying to crash in a way that does the minimum amount of damage so you can get the car fixed more quickly to get back on the track. Mm-hmm. So there's a strategy to how you crash. <laughs> and that strategy on that day was was obviously to try and minimize the, the impact as it happens. You know, my head hit the side of the chassis because we didn't have the high cockpit sides that we have today. And I was knocked out. But there was no fear. There was no screaming. There was no, why am I here? Get me out. It was just the pleasure of driving, but in a slightly awkward scenario prior to the crash. And my perception was that being knocked out was like what death could be like in that you don't remember. The difference being you wake up when you're knocked out, but in death you never wake up. And so from that moment on, you didn't fear death? I never feared death, but Mm. I really wanted my mother to understand if I was ever killed in a racing car in a Grand Prix, which was by definition a public event, Mm. please don't think my last moments are filled with fear. Because in my mind and my experience of being knocked out, they were not filled with fear. They were filled with, I think I've got this. I think I can get it back. And did did mum appreciate the conversation or did she go, you're nuts? <laughs> she, she didn't really want to have the conversation, which yeah. I understand. But yeah. in telling her, it was as much for me as it was for her. Mm. But not because I was scared. But it was a life experience of mm. what might be on the other side. Mm. And in my moments of being knocked out, it was just a whole bunch of deep sleep and no memory yeah fascinating now look we, we must also just talk about red bull dc so you've done your nine years at mclaren 2004 comes along you've got kimi raikkonen as your teammate um how early in that season did you know that uh, you were not going to be at the team in 2005 very early actually it was quite clear that kimi was young and and and, and fast so very much following on uh, from where Mika had left off, with the difference being Mika was more of a team player. We were of similar age. We had learnt to how to get the best out of each other in terms of you know what I was good at and what he was good at and where we both were a little bit lacking and how we could work together to take the whole team forward. Kimi, there just wasn't really any of that communication. He just was asleep under the bench or driving the car quickly. And uh, so therefore, I had the, the benefit of experience and knowledge of the team, but he had the speed. And and therefore, the team had been courted by Julian Jacobi, who'd formerly been at IMG uh, regarding um, Juan Pablo Montoya. And I was actually told in uh, the June of 2003 that they'd signed him for 2004, uh, sorry, 2005. So I knew a year and a half before I left the team that they'd signed someone else. And Ron didn't want to tell me himself. So he had Martin Whitmarsh come into the office as well. And the two of them sat there and explained that I wouldn't be with the team in 2005 because they'd signed Juan Pablo, but they wanted to tell me early out of respect for the previous seven and a half years, but they didn't want to make an announcement on Juan Pablo until whatever, the end of the year. And I was very, I was very relaxed about it because one, I could feel it coming. Just, you know, as a racing driver, if, if you're not delivering, then, you know, that would seem fair enough. 
and also I think the, the relationship we'd, we'd, we'd kind of ha- you know we'd had our time it's a very long time but by the time we got to the very end the last race everyone was quite happy to go their own ways as it happens when I left the paddock in the end of 2004 I was without a drive and seemingly at the end of my Grand Prix career and uh, had you know spoken to various teams I got off like I did when I was in Formula 3000 and running out of options I got off my arse and went around and and you know really showed people my commitment I remember talking to Jean talking to and you Flavio. did go back to Ferrari did you? yeah yeah what did but not, not as a race driver to oh. be their test driver oh. I, and, and likewise at uh, you know with Flavio I said I'll be your test driver I've still got something to offer I still believe that I can deliver and and Jean was he said David we've got two test drivers already and I'm in ba- I'm I'm having the conversation out of respect for you but I can't I can't offer you the third test driver and I was like okay that's fine um, interesting r- that you were still loving driving as yeah. so much oh, that I was you still wanted committed. to get, I knew yeah. there was unfinished business yeah and I still wanted to do it and I remember talking to Williams and having a meeting there with Patrick and I think it was Sam Michael at the time and you know really trying to show them why I could be a good driver for them. Um, and I had spoken to Jaguar. I'd had a meeting actually with um, Mark Gillen here in this very office during the Monaco Grand Prix, and I just wasn't feeling Jaguar. I just didn't, the people involved didn't give me the confidence that Jaguar would be anything more than a middle grade team. And then Red Bull bought Jaguar and everything changed. And then- uh, How quickly did everything change? Uh, I I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd been involved in that deal. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't involved in the deal, but I, I can't recall exactly how, how quickly it changed. But it went from me having sat with Martin going through the pros and cons of racing for Jaguar and there being a lot more negatives in my mind than positives. And then pretty much deciding that, that wasn't an option to Red Bull buying the team, new management being put in place. Martin meeting with Helmut, I met with Christian, agreeing to go to a test in Hereth without a contract to see how I felt, which is essentially a Jaguar car repainted because they'd obviously just done everything quickly. And meeting Dietrich to know and understand what his commitment was. And and once I knew Christian of old, meeting Dietrich, Helmut's conversation with Martin, everything there just gave me the, the belief this could be different and it wouldn't just be a middle grid Jaguar and that the commitment and understanding was there. Uh, and I could work with Christian to use my experience of, of Formula One, his experience of running a team very successfully in, in Formula 3000 and having been a racing driver and just the Red Bull commitment to want to do things at the highest level. And that started a four-year journey. What did Mataschitz say to you that convinced you? That he understood that the, the financial commitment needed was something that would evolve because you there'll always be something more than what you can budget for today because new machinery and new technology comes online and you can't say, well, we're not going to have it because it didn't exist when we did the budget in January or, or December. Now that new great piece of software is available, but it's £10 million. We, we need to wait until next year's budget. You, you, are you prepared to... And he's absolutely. You know, I'm empowering... Christian, you, the team, to to make this a winning Formula One team. I want this to be a world championship winning team. Something Flavio Briatore said to me about Michael Schumacher was that he said, he was being very modest actually, he just said, Michael was like the team principal. 
did you feel when you went to Red Bull that you and Christian were kind of sharing that responsibility? No, I don't. I, I love the a manager, chain. if you like. Yeah, well, I get the analogy, but I see it like this. I love the chain of command. I have always seen myself ne never as someone that aspires to be the king of the castle in terms of the boss who, who's just telling everyone what to do. I like having a boss, even if it's someone younger than me, even if it's someone that's got no experience of Formula One at that time, because that means they've got responsibility of an area that I don't have to have responsibility of. So I'm a great believer in team. I'm a great believer in what is a team and what has enabled me to go on and be involved in business beyond being a driver is I have no problem being in industries where I have got no knowledge of how that industry works, the technology of that industry. And, you know, an example of that would be Whisper Films, which is, you know, one of Britain's biggest successful production companies right now. Uh, I don't know how to switch on an edit suite, never mind produce a, uh, you know, a short feature. But I have people within the company and within the team who, who are experts at that, who are fantastic at that. I didn't know how to design and build a racing car, but I knew people who did. I had to focus on my job, which was giving them the information from the car, being the voice of the car and driving that car quickly. So in answering your question, Christian had all of the day-to-day -day managerial responsibilities of being a team principal. And I assumed the in harmony or hand in hand, if you like, role with him of, right, where do we think this team in comparison to Williams, in comparison to McLaren is good? And where do we think it needs to be enhanced? And if it needs to be enhanced in an area, who are the people that we would bring to the team to make it better? And some of those people I'd worked with and, and had confidence. And some, you know, Christian had come across or decided they were the right people. But together we worked as we should to make the team, first of all, respected, respected in the paddock. And then ultimately they grew the team to the point where it's the great success story. Still out of the same factory that was Stuart Grand Prix, Jaguar, but the difference being the culture changed and the commitment from the management changed. And and with people, you have success. And I've always said, and it's in my book, The Winning Formula, the little link, which is the name above the door is not what gives you success. So it could be BlackBerry or Nokia from the past who then got passed over by, you know, whatever, Apple and various other mobile phone companies. McLaren are going through that right now. Williams are going right through going through that right now. M multiple championship winning teams. The name doesn't give you success. It's the people that are collectively working together that will give you that success. And I don't believe that Williams or McLaren don't have the individual talent to to compete. But what they've struggled with the last couple of years, of course, it, those those individual talents haven't found the cohesive collective team method of working to get the best out of each other. You need the team by definition. You all have to be pulling the same direction at the same time. And that's that's the, the key and, and one of the, the core skills that Christian's been able to, to do is recognising talent, recognising where the strengths are, putting them in the right role and, and maintaining those relationships when inevitably people suddenly get headhunted elsewhere. So on paper... Red Bull was the least successful period of, of your career in terms of results, but somehow was it one of the most satisfying periods of your career? 
Absolutely. One of the most satisfying moments because I felt more than just a driver. I felt part of this this momentum to take a team forward and to prove that, just as I said, it's not the name, it's not the building. You know, the Red Bull factory is a pretty average looking facility in the middle of uh, an industrial state in Milton Keynes. It's not walking uh, it's not walking anymore is it but the mclaren MTC, facility yeah, mtc yeah. is an incredible yeah. so norman foster designed work of engineering art that doesn't design the race car it's the people and of course you would have that and the success if you could because you're out trumping all of your your other uh, teams when you're uh, talking to sponsors but um i love the red bull journey and it was a perfect moment at the perfect point in my career which is See, seen me continue to have a relationship with Red Bull. I still drive their running show cars at events around the world. I still get my little F1 fix without, um, you know, without feeling I need it. It comes to me every year. I get the chance to drive a Formula One car and be reminded they're fast, they're technical, they're wonderful pieces of engineering art. So how frustrating was it that that journey came to an end at the end of 2008, just as the team was coming on song and was, has been, was so dominant? Not at all, because it was evident to me that I'd reached the end, a little bit like at the McLaren journey, it was evident that I'd reached the end of, of that particular journey. And actually at the end of my McLaren um, end of season farewell was what's called Stars and Cars in Stuttgart. And I remember Martin Whitmarsh had decided to give me a, 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 a bike uh, top of the range mountain bike that was actually put together by Alexander Wurtz who, who used to be involved in the mountain bike team and it was all sort of sprayed up McLaren and Mercedes and when he gave it to me he was like jokingly going on your bike <laughs> you know because obviously the cracker, motor, the cracker yeah. joke and I remember uh, saying to him um, thank you very much for the gift but just so you know I'm going to continue racing. I didn't know at that time exactly, you know, what the, how the Red Bull thing was going to work out. Um, but I'm going to take Adrian with me. And um, we, 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 you know, we look forward to competing against you in the future. I guess that wiped the smile off his face. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, I had no idea that Adrian, Adrian would be available. And in fairness, it was Christian who, who first brought up when we, we were going through the process of, right, how do we build the team? He was, he, he said, you know, you think Christian would be interested? I said, well, let, let's go and have a dinner with him and have the conversation. So Christian had the initial idea. I'd like to imagine I would have got there at some point thinking, you know, that Adrian would be, would, would be available. But anyway, we, we met with him and clearly he, he was available and eventually joined the team. And him, along with all the other great people at Red Bull, have really done amazing things over the last few years. Well, DC, you've done amazing things over the last few years as well, because, of course, from driving, it became broadcasting and business and the winning formula, as, you, as you've just said. But, um, you know, there must have been an option. You had enough in the bank, I'm assuming, to go and live in Barbados for the rest of your life. But you, you've opted not to do that. And you're working, at least from the outside, it looks like you're working as hard as you ever have done. Why? I come from a family of grafters. Um, we have a transport business called Hayton Coulthard, which was started in 1916. Still operating today, still in family ownership. My brother runs a business. His uh, two boys are working in the business. 
we, we're grafters and anyone who's got a family business or a self-employed business knows that they are the people who take the least amount of sick leave. They are the people that take the least amount of holidays because you're wired to work and you understand that you have a responsibility to make things happen. So it was always going to be difficult for me having been brought up in that environment to suddenly go, okay, now because I've been a Grand Prix driver for 15 years, I've now decided that working is overrated and sitting on the beach in Barbados is where it's at. No, I agree. Completely concur with everything you just said. So look, just in summary, it's been a wonderful chat. Thank you very much. But just looking back at the career as the driver, um, anything you would have done differently or do you think it is what it is and, and it was 13 Grand Prix wins and 62 podiums and, and, and. Well, it is what it is, is the name of my first book, funnily enough. Um, and the reason it is called It Is What It Is, because I say that very often, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, the second book, of course, as you mentioned, is The Winning Formula, available in paperback. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's a great read, actually. If you suffer from insomnia, <laughs> make sure you get it. So, uh, of course, you would do things differently. And, you know, maybe not moving over, you know, uh, sorry, maybe not signing to McLaren for 96 would have been one of those things, maybe not moving over in 98 for, for Mika. But had I had the benefit of the hindsight, then other people would have that benefit and then no one would make mistakes and then life mm. would be much more predictable. Mm. And one of the, the, uh, you know, the things that make life what it is, is, is the un unpredictable nature of what, what is around the corner and mm. how long we're going to live and, do we sit back waiting for opportunities or do we go knocking on doors? And my simple advice to anyone, if they asked, and because of my life experiences, I don't wait for the phone to ring. The amount of people that say to me, oh, I'm just waiting on blah, 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 phoning me back. Well, don't wait on them phoning you back. If, if, you're, if you're literally not able to function until they, you get that answer, get in the car and go to them, knock on the door. More difficult for them not to open the door than it is not to phone you. Get yourself in front of people and you might not get the answer you want, but you might just get the answer you want. And at least you know when or lose or yes or no, you, you've got your decision to then make the next decision. So don't wait if you don't have to. Make it happen. I think that's the winning formula, isn't it? David, thank you very much. What a wonderful chat. Thanks for your time. Thank you. DC was on good form, wasn't he? Despite having known him for more than 20 years, there was a load of information in there that I didn't already know. So thanks for being so open and honest, DC. Great to chat. Well, that's it for this episode, but we're back next week with another fabulous guest. Make sure you tune in. And to make sure you don't miss out, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and tons of other podcast platforms. And while you're there, why not leave a review? Or better still, recommend us to a friend. And we love you getting in touch. Some of your feedback on the Kimi Raikkonen podcast was hilarious. Thank you very much. And remember to use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid or drop me a line on Twitter at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.